All right, well, it comes to no shock to most of you, if you know me, that I might have struggled with some maturity issues early in life. Um, only one person laughed. I'll try it again in the next episode. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I struggled. Uh, matter of fact, I, I had some uh, close calls in my early days of really putting me on the line of death. I played chicken with a geo tracker and lost. Um, I uh, went to college and I decided to reinvent myself. I went to a Bible college, St. Louis Christian College, as a non Christian to play basketball. Um, and I was trying to fit in. I was trying to not be alone. Um, and to be honest, it was hard to break into a Christian culture, a new culture. So basically I said, you know what, John, I need to be cooler. I need to walk out of high school, reinvent myself and be the cool kid. Spoiler alert, it didn't happen, but I tried for a while. Okay, so I hung out with all these basketball friends. We had a good time. And I remember one day after practice, St. Louis Christian College is not a big campus, maybe the size of this room. Um, and there was one main drag, one main street kind of in the middle, and it, and it was a hill that went down into the guy's dorm. Um, and so a bunch of my friends and I were walking down this hill to the guy's dorm, uh, and my buddy, I noticed, was at the top of the hill in a geo-tracker. Matter of fact, Jonathan was my roommate. He was like a really good friend. I was only there for a short amount of time, but we kind of headed off. And so I decided, looking at my friends, like, you know what, I need to impress people. I need to make them laugh. I need to make them smile. I need to become a cool kid. So what I decided to do, the wisest thing I thought of was I was going to stand right in the middle of the road. And I did. So I decided I stood right in the middle of the road. And in my mind, I'm like, he's got to stop. He can't hit me. I'm his roommate. That would be awkward, right? And Jonathan was thinking, he's got to move. I'm in a car. <laughs> a sane human being would say, I'm just going to get out of the way. Like I said, lack of frontal lobe development, I was young, not great decision-making process. So that moment happened where the GR tracker was coming about 15 miles an hour. I knew that if I didn't move, I was going to be a dead man. And my, laugh, my life flashed before my eyes. I was mildly depressed. I thought I should probably get out of the way. So instead of moving to my right or jumping to my left, I jumped straight up in the air. <laughs> I don't know why it just happened. I kind of tucked. I'm glad I tucked because when I went through the windshield, it didn't feel good. And then I bounced off the hood of the geotracker into the asphalt and then rolled into the grass. And here's the worst part of the story. All my friends that I was hanging out with went, oh no, your car, it's all busted, and ran to Jonathan. It's like, oh no, your tracker, it's destroyed. As I'm on the ground twitching and realizing these are the people I probably am not doing a very good job impressing. Peer pressure put me into a situation where it was not a healthy, a healthy way to go about it. I was fine. Um, I rubbed some dirt in it. I walked it off, whatever you, know, you do. Uh, I ended up eating dinner that night and playing basketball, so it was fine. It was just one of those stories you look back and think, Oh my goodness. Um, uh, matter of fact, after the first service, I was talking with some high school students in the back, and I think I realized I've never actually told my mom that story. So if you're a, a fr friend with Linda on Facebook, shh, let's keep this between you and I. <laughs> uh, thankfully, no one was hurt too bad, even though it was kind of a ridiculous situation. But sometimes when we follow the crowd, the effects are much more serious. If you're anything like me, you struggle with peer pressure. Now, I know a lot of you right now are saying, hey, come on, peer pressure for teenagers, maybe 20-year-olds, I'm obviously much more mature and have it together. But I'm going to push back on that thought just for a moment. 
How many times do we feel uncomfortable because of a joke or a comment, yet we don't say a thing? How many times? What about the times you know the topic has turned from information to gossip and we don't stop it? When we talk about a friend and if they're not there, it's like, oh man, they're going through a hard time. Maybe we should just pray for them. So that's kind. That's nice. But it goes from like, oh, they're having a hard time. And let me share everything I know about it. But yet we don't. We don't stop that conversation in its tracks. You and I don't like being alone. And so sometimes this peer pressure, this tension, we're pulled into it. Alone is a painful place to be in. It points out how different we are than others. To this day, one of my greatest fears is being alone. One of my greatest insecurities is being alone. I have no problem standing in front of how many people and saying stupid stories about myself. But what makes me anxious is when I sit in my office with the door closed and nobody's there. I've got issues. I'm seeing help. It's going to be okay. Okay? But to be honest, being alone is painful. Uh, unfortunately, I've either taught my eight-year-old this very same thing or she has caught this from my habits. My eight-year-old will follow me around the house and not interact with me, but she just wants to be in the same room as somebody else. So if I'm downstairs folding laundry, she'll go down there, sit on the couch and read her book. And if I'm done folding laundry, if I'm done in that room and I go upstairs into the kitchen and start doing something else, I notice I have my, my little puppy follows me all the way upstairs, my eight-year-old, and she doesn't interact. She doesn't want to really want to talk to me. She just doesn't want to be alone. Um, so that's something I've given her so that she can see counseling someday. Uh, you've heard it said, everyone is doing it or keeping up with the Joneses. I feel like peer pressure, this idea of uh, uh, bowing to societal norms or finding a place not to be alone is something that you and I both very much deal with on a day to day. It doesn't matter what car we drove here. Someone else's opinion of that car helped you choose that car. The clothes that you and I are wearing today are not just simply your opinion. I'm married. I'm not allowed to dress myself. I understand it. Reasonable, right? But we deal with peer pressure. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of, the world, of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect. Well, why do you think we are called to not be transformed by what's around us? Because what's around us is broken. What's around us is sinful. What is around us is just not healthy. It's not God's ways. Matter of fact, the world tells us that if we are hurt, we should seek revenge. But what does God tell us? To love our enemies. Culture says wealth equates happiness. But what does Jesus say? We are to store up treasures in heaven that we will be taken care of. The world tells us any way is the right way to God. If you have a way, that's great. If you found spirituality in some way, somehow, that's okay. And, it's, and I'm, I need to respect you for that. What does scripture say? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. The world tells us truth is a fictional concept. There's no truth. There's there's no right and wrong. There's maybe a right and wrong for you, and that's your morality, and that's fine, but you can't push that on me. What does God tell us? God tells us the truth will set us free. We live in a world where we constantly struggle with what's going on around us and God's way, because it's two very separate entities, to do very separate ways. Now, this morning, we're starting the good book series, like John said. Uh, the Bible's often intimidating, 
and many are confused to know where to begin. I've had the opportunity to be in student ministries for a very long time, and one of my greatest fears is when a student walks up to me and says, oh, I have a question about scripture, let's turn to Revelation. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Why are you reading that? Well, I flipped it open. Well, well, I was in Leviticus the other day, and it was talking about pussy boils. And I'm like, stop, stop, time out, time out. Listen, the Bible has a ton of information, but without context, without knowing a good place to start, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And so a lot of people look at the Bible, and they're intimidated and say, I don't know where to start, and the stuff that I've read doesn't make sense. And so this series, this eight-week series, is going to help us, Sherwood Oaks Christian Church, uh, one church, many locations, kind of rally together in life groups, small groups, core groups, Sunday mornings, uh, Wednesday afternoons, whenever we study, we're calling our people, our family, to all be a part of this. This is going to give us 40 big ideas. And so in bite-sized chunks, now hold on, if I just pick this up, let's, let's, be, let's be transparent here. This doesn't look like something like that's an easy read. You're like, oh look, that's an encyclopedia. That's wonderful. Don't be scared. I promise. It's okay. It's, it's three to four pages, five times a week. So it's a scripture, and there's about a page and a half, two pages of reflection. So I want to encourage you, be a part of a group somehow, some way, reading through this. And it's wonderful that we have the opportunity as a church to be all on the same, um, really the same page. Uh, now, we are going to see in this series that God is a rescuer, a redeemer, a provider, and a deliverer. And this morning, we're looking at how to stay afloat in troubled times. We're going to be talking about Noah. Now, just for a second, if I say the word Noah, audience participation, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word Noah? Go. Ark, flood, animals. All right, so we get this, we get this fuzzy, warm, happy picture, maybe like in a nursery someplace, either at home or at a church, or there's this big, beautiful uh, boat, and there's animals all lined up in a row, <laughs> in a row. I can't get my kids to line in a row, right? Anyway, moving on. Um, but they're all clean, and it's wonderful, and there's a guy in robes, and he's like, yes, I've got this. I totally know what's going on. That's not what the Bible paints at all. That's a completely different picture. So when I think of Noah, and I read in my children's books, I got an eight and a six-year-old, and in their little children's Bible, it talks about the ark, but it doesn't necessarily talk about how God wipes out mankind. You don't necessarily see that in the children's Bible. But when we see it here, when we dive into this, this is exactly what's happening. Noah is called to do something in a catastrophic time. So we're going to bust open our Bibles. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis, if you would like to join us, or it's going to be uh, up on, on the screen. We're going to be looking at the culture. We're looking at why Noah was called out and what was going on there. Now, uh, when we think about Noah, um, the, all these different things, nursery rhymes come to mind. But to be very honest, the greatest lesson in my mind can be found at the beginning of the story, not necessarily at the end of the story. Uh, Genesis 5, or I'm sorry, Genesis 6, 5 through 8 says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay, so this isn't flowery. This isn't happy. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures moving along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So when we look at culture in the time of Noah, we're seeing this tension of peer pressure as well. Noah is a man of righteousness, and his culture is completely messed up. These were dark times where people focused on evil and violence. It was a me-centered world. Does that remind you of the time that we live in today? I'm telling you guys, if you turn on the news, if you're on the internet, if you read a paper, I've heard of those before, if you read a paper out there, like you're going to see that this world is in utter chaos. Violence is rampant. It is a mess. Society was corrupt. The Hebrew word would describe this as to decay. It was literally falling to pieces, kind of like our society. Mankind was commissioned to be fruitful and fill the earth, but instead filled it with violence, and God regretted his decision to create man. That kind of hurts my heart, but we're going to move on. He regretted and grieved his creation. But Jesus uh, used Noah's culture as an image of, the, of a world unaware of the rising temperature of evil around it. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be the coming of the Son of Man. I feel like we're living in that age today. Now, I'm not going to say today is any worse than it was yesterday. I feel like every generation looks back and says, oh, there was glory days. But to be very honest with the amount of technology we have today, I think we just know more about how destructive and evil our society is today than we did maybe 30, 40 years ago. I think there's the same kind of evil. Maybe we just kind of know more about it. But Noah was different than the culture around him because of his faith. Noah wasn't just a good man. And I, I want to stress this because there are a lot of good people in this world. There are a lot of people that care about the environment and care about children, care about animals. There are people out there that have no problem planting trees and worrying about other people. But it wasn't because of this goodness Noah was set apart. It was because of his righteousness, his connection, his walk with God. Genesis 6, 9 through 13 says this. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, not a perfect man, not a sinless man, but a man that was in right standing with God. Blameless among the people of his time, he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people this earth, and filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both, both them and the earth. Noah believed despite the majority. Noah was the righteousness in this world. He was a lone beacon of light. And God looked at Noah and said, I can start over with you. I can recreate with you. Again, he was not perfect. His wife and him probably had issues. They had sons, which means they had lots of issues, collateral damage issues, okay? We all know this. Like, their life was not perfect, but he was righteous. He was in a right position because of God. Um, he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do, because by living in a right way with God, their relationship was much like one. Blameless lifestyle that others took note of. Matter of fact, he wasn't just a good guy, but in a broken society, 
the society looked at Noah and said, hey, there's something different about him. He's doing things in a right way. He's not cheating. He's not stealing. He's not killing. He's not murdering. He is following a faith that makes him different, and we can mock him because of it. Noah demonstrated the faith of someone willing to stand for God, even if it meant standing alone. And alone is scary. Now, matter of fact, Noah is the last man in the Old Testament that is said to have walked with God. This idea that there was a connection one and in the other. All the other men and women refer to as to be before God. As in God was this high and we are this low. He was the last man in righteousness to have this honor of being able to be called walking with God. Now, can you imagine this? His peers must have mocked him for building a large box because God told him to. Now, if you're anything like the mufflers, there are, there's always some kind of project happening in our house. Uh, right now, I have half of a fence in the backyard. I still have a pond that was not supposed to be a pond. It's just I haven't leveled things out. And things are kind of happening. Anybody else have some kind of a project you're halfway through? Okay. Um, my wife loves gardening, but she doesn't like the tilling, the planting, the weed, uh, weeding, or the actual harvest. I do that for her. Um, I hate gardening, but I'm really excited I can help her garden because she likes to garden, right? You, you have these products. You have these times in life where you're like, I've got something to do, but it doesn't make a ton of sense. Can you imagine, to get anybody off the top of your head, can you, rem, can you remember how long it took Moses and his family to build this big, gigantic ark? Anybody remember? About 120 years. Okay? So, can you, can you imagine, can you imagine Noah's wife? <laughs> I'm going to take some liberty here, so please don't hate me, I promise. But can you imagine, say, 10 years into the project, Noah's wife looking at him and saying, really? Can you wrap this up? It's been 10 years, 110 years later after that, right? But his peers, his neighbors, his in-laws watched him build this big, gigantic ark. I, I hate to say the word boat because literally later on in the passage, what we're going to see is it has nothing to do with a boat. There's no rudder. There's no sails. Matter of fact, God told Noah to build the only entrance and exit on the side of the boat. Now think about it. Anybody like boating around here, sailing? Okay. If you have the only opening where the water would be, if it's in the water, can you open that? Can you open that hatch? No way. The old joke of like having a screen door in a submarine applies here. Like it doesn't really work out well. The only time this ark would have been used to enter and exit if it was completely on dry land, which was not the purpose of it. The purpose of it was it to float. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine the people around Noah poking him, mocking him, making fun of him, bringing doubt into his life? But Noah reacts and says, Okay, God, I, I walk with you every day. My faith is such that I understand that I trust you. And he did it. Noah trusted God at his word. Matter of fact, Hebrews 11 says this in this celebrated faith chapter in Hebrews. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen and holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that is keeping with faith. Because of his closeness with God, when God asked him to do something counterintuitive, he did it. 
Can you imagine? Can you imagine you have this inkling? Maybe it's a word, maybe it's an email, maybe God finally gets a hold of you and says, hey, I want you to do something. And you say, well, that sounds crazy. I don't know about you, but I would push back a little bit. I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, you're, you're killing everyone? That's overkill, right? I mean, come on. Second of all, I would be like, man, that's a big boat. We can make it smaller. This could be an afternoon project, not a 110 years project. Can you imagine if God told you to do something so different than what culture is demanding from you? Can you imagine? Genesis 6, 14 through 7 says this. So you make uh, yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside. This is how you build it. And then he goes through all these laundry lists of things to do and not to do. Now, the ark can be translated box, coffin. A better picture would be a barge or a floating crate. Again, it didn't have a V-hole. It didn't have a W-hole. It was literally just a big, giant box. It had a wonderful amount of flotation uh, properties to it, but it didn't go anywhere. It was completely under God's power and control. Noah had no rudder, no steering wheel. If the winds blew this way or that way, he just had to give up control. He just had to give up control. We are often powerless in this life, but it is always wise to surrender ourselves to the care of God. Because mankind drifted so far from God's purpose, God decided to recreate. And if you're new here, if this is your first time at church, first of all, man, way to go. Way to be brave and do something new. I'm glad you're here. I hope you feel warm and welcomed. I hope you feel loved. This is a topic that as a preacher, as somebody that loves Jesus, it intimidates me to say that God said there was wickedness to a point, there was sin to a point that the purpose of man was so far off balance that he had to recreate, that he took care of everything, kind of took the extra sketch. Remember an extra sketch back in the 70s and 80s, good stuff? And he just went, and he started all over again. That kind of scares me. So I'm just going to say it. Maybe that scares you too, but it's the point he's referring to here is sin has consequence. And when wit goes over and beyond, the purpose of man was lost. Noah reacted to God's plan to restart mankind through a worldwide flood with one simple phrase. Genesis 6.22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Because of his faith, because of his time spent in a relationship with God, because of his understanding and promises that God is a big deal and he'll deliver on those promises, Noah said, this sounds ridiculous. This is completely going to get me in trouble with everybody in this world. But he just simply did everything that God commanded him to do. God called Noah to act out his faith in light of a culture that was ultimately broken. God calls his followers today to do the very same thing. So how do we do this? How do we look at Noah and say, whoa, that guy was nuts. That guy was crazy. God asked him to do something completely out of the box and he had the faith to do it. All right, let's wrap it up. Let's pray and let's leave. What do we glean out of this? What do we look at Noah and say, okay, I can take this and run with it in our own lives. I got two main points and then we can get out of here. It is our job to influence others by living out faith that is often counterintuitive. God's ways are not man's ways. We have to run from the peer pressure, run from the societal norms, and chase after God. First one is this, uh, love with full abandonment. Mark 12, 30 through 31 says, love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. Now, as a male, 
as a John Muffler, there are lots of things in scripture that I read and I'm like, ooh, that could go maybe a couple of different ways or how do I navigate this? Man, I need, to, I need to go to a commentary. I need to go online. I need to ask some buddies of mine. This is one of those scriptures that I look at and I say, I know exactly how to live this out. It is my job to reorient my priorities. I need to love God first more than me, more than my future, more than my financial success, more than my kids, more than my wife. And I need to love my neighbors because they are in the same position. They are God's kids. This is easy in theory to me. I said, all right, God gives me a plan. He just like, he gave Noah a plan and gave him dimensions and Noah's like, all right, I'll get it done, I'll get it done. He looks at us and says, hey, you need to love me and you need to love my kids. Even if they've hurt you, even if they've disappointed you, even if they have done everything in their power to put you down, we are to love him and to love others. And the second one is to take your unique step in faith. Everyone in here is a different, different, journey with God, a different position in their journey, different section of life. Maybe the very first thing you need to do is maybe you are new here. Maybe you haven't been a part of uh, church culture for a long time and you look at Jesus and say, is this a big deal? Why would I change my life? I want to re-invite you like we invited you last week if you weren't here. We are trying to gather together these um, ask groups or share groups, all different kind of campuses, uh, different places. You can, you can find John, you can find uh, myself at the end. We're trying to get non-Christians outsiders, insiders, Christians, non-Christians, people that would, would classify themselves somewhere in between. I'm not 100% sure what's going on. I'd like to ask some questions. And we want you to be part of that group. We want you to have the freedom to ask hard questions. There's nothing taboo in these groups. There's no, I'm going to make you a Christian. Uh, we just want you to sit down and have a great conversation around a cup of coffee with people that talk faith. Maybe your step of faith is that it's time to root yourself in a life group. I don't know if you've done it before. Maybe you've heard negative or positive things, or maybe you're just saying like, I don't need people, and I'm an island, I'm cool. I don't know what you're saying is, but for the next eight weeks, I want you to try it out. If you're not a part of a life group, a core group, a small group, whatever you want to call it, if you're not in community with other people having conversations about faith, take eight weeks. How long is eight weeks? Is it a lifetime? Is it a ton of months? No, it's just eight weeks. I give you permission to try something, and if it doesn't work out, okay. Thank you for trying it. If you're not in a life group, maybe that's your next step. Maybe you need to ask hard questions and say, you know what? I get Jesus, but I don't understand how I have to live my life according to this or to that and ask good questions. Maybe it's time for you to lead in ministry and service. Maybe you've been a part of the church culture for a while and you say, you know what? I've been sitting and listening. I am overly prepared. It's time. There are lots of opportunities here on the west side, on the east side, in Bedford, there are tons of opportunities in Bloomington that we can reach people and love them because of Jesus Christ. My encouragement is if you have the heart and God has called you to do something ridiculous, you find yourself in that room. You find yourself in the room over there. You find yourself in Cars Park with those junior and senior high uh, boys and girls and how crazy they are and how weird life is during that time. And just pray for them, please. Just pray for them. Um, maybe that's your time. Maybe your next step is it's, it's time. Maybe you know and you follow Jesus and it's time for you to find somebody you love in your workplace, in this church, maybe even your family, maybe even a neighbor and just have a hard conversation about faith. Sit down with a cup of coffee. Don't look at them as a project, but look at them and say, I love you so much that what I value in my life is Jesus. I want to share that with you. Maybe it's time for you to start discipling. 
Maybe it's time for you to start mentoring. Maybe it's time for you to start pouring energy into people for Jesus Christ. My hope is this, that we are not pushed around back and forth because of a society that's broken and damaged, but we chase after Jesus Christ, that our faith is so strong that we become like Noah, that we are beacons to our societies, that we play that tension and say, you know what, I'm going to choose God's ways instead of man's ways. I'm going to chase after him because I know he is my redeemer, he's my provider, and he loves me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship at an anvets. Man, how fantastic is it in America that we can come to a place and worship. We have the freedom to chase after Jesus in our homes, in our businesses, and here on the weekends on the west side. Father, bless this congregation as they chase after Jesus Christ. Let them see, understand, uh, and feel this pressing desire to love you and to love your kids. Even if they've damaged us, even if they've hurt us, even if they look, smell, and speak differently than us, help us have that burning desire to love others simply because you've loved us first and we like to share that with others. Father, help us be like Noah, that our faith defines us, not necessarily the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.